welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I have two wonderful guests with me here in the studio. First, the assistant church historian and recorder, Reed Nelson. Welcome, Reed. Thank you, Ben. Great to be here with you. And joining us again, our good friend, Shailen Back. She's recently had an opportunity to read Volume 1 and will share her thoughts and questions. Welcome, Shailen. Thanks for having me. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about Chapter 46. This is the concluding chapter of the Saints' volumes. There will be one more podcast episode, uh, just so you are aware out there in our listening audience. But today we're going to focus on this final chapter that brings to a conclusion this podcast we've been listening to and working on for the last nine months. Reed, can you help kind of set the scene for us? This is a pretty difficult time in Nauvoo. What's happening with the saints and with the church there? Well, it is a difficult time, Ben. The saints look to Illinois, specifically Nauvoo, as a place of refuge, particularly after the uh, atrocities committed in Missouri. And so you have the saints coming across the Mississippi River, finding a place which Joseph Smith declared as the place beautiful, and thinking we're going to be here for a while, and we're going to be peaceful, and we're going to be happy, we're going to have protection. We're, gonna, we're out of Missouri. We're going to have a much better go right. this time around. And so by this time in the book and in the story of the Latter-day Saints, you find that that wasn't necessarily the case. Their prophet's been murdered. It's really going downhill. And many Latter-day Saints are wondering, is this the end? Is it over? Uh, will the church survive? Is the covenant, uh, our ordinances still viable? There's a difference of opinion on who should be leading the church and where the keys reside. And so it is a, a dark chapter, but... Uh, the saints had great light before, and they had great hopes for a future light in the future. Tell us a little bit about Sidney Rigdon. Now, in a previous chapter, we learned a little bit about Sidney's claims for church leadership. In chapter 46, we have a difficult moment. Sidney's a man the saints have loved. I mean, he's this man who kind of gave up all of his congregation. He, he's been such a wonderful influence in a lot of ways. And now here we are, and Sidney's, he's excommunicated. Right. I think Sidney Rigdon learned that, like anyone who's not willing to follow those who hold the keys, which at that time was the Quorum of the Twelve, that they either have to get in line or, or they're going to be cut off. And in his case, it was extreme. And there was, of course, a, a real threat, an existential crisis in the church of, will we continue? And Sidney Rigdon, particularly early on, there following the death of Joseph and Hiram, is really starting to lead people astray. And so he's viewed as a real threat, a real challenge to Brigham Young's leadership as an apostle. I like to think of Sidney Rigdon experience, I think you have to look all the way back to the early 1830s in Kirtland when he's tarred and feathered there in Hiram, Ohio. And it seems like he was never quite the same thereafter. Different historians and other scholars with medical training have tried to understand what was going on in his mind and per, perhaps the, that tar and feathering and hitting his head multiple times really caused problems that affected his judgment and his loyalties and other things throughout the rest of his life. So I try and understand, not appreciate Sidney Rigdon for what he was, where he was at, but at least understand and have some empathy for him. At the same time, um, I, I think the leadership of the church was very frustrated 
because they were they were convinced and absolutely knew what they should be doing and where they were going to go. And Sidney seemed to be a roadblock and a diversion for so many of those saints who began to look to him for leadership. So I think excommunication was the the right thing and the necessary thing. But but it's a sad thing because as you say, he was beloved. Many of the early saints, the disciples of Christ came into the church because of his leadership and his desire to follow the prophet. Well, and I actually served a mission in Cleveland, Ohio, so I gave tours in Kirtland for, okay. for a time. And so, yeah, my memories of my memories of Sidney Rigdon, no, my perspective of Sidney Rigdon was when he was a very strong and influential church leader. And so this is so hard for me to read. And you bring up, you know, his, his injury and, and everything in Kirtland. And so after that, did it did his decisions kind of concern the brethren soon after that, or was it just after the death of Joseph Smith? No, it was certainly uh, during the Kirtland period, during the Missouri period, where he said some very strong things, and then certainly in the Nauvoo period. By this time, he'd already been kind of on the ins and the outs with Joseph Smith and the other senior brethren of the church. Clearly, he's still a member of the First Presidency, yet he's not one who receives the endowment. He's not part of the Quorum of the Anointed. He does not participate in plural marriage and is not sealed to his wife. In other words, even though he's a member of the First Presidency, he's not part of the upper echelon of the church. Right. He, because of his Never own, moved to Nauvoo. Yeah, because of his own feelings, he sort of cut, had cut himself off from the church, yet he's Joseph Smith's running mate for President of the United States in 1844. And so people have said, so is Signe in is he, or is he out? You know, Is he in good standing or is he not? I think it depends on the week and it depends on the issue and it depends ultimately how close to the martyrdom that happened. Mm -hmm. But I think there were certainly struggles from Hiram on. Speaking of the martyrdom, Shaylin, was it surprising at all to you to learn that there was an actual trial for Joseph's murder? Or or is that something you think most people know? Did you know? No, I did not know. I was I was really surprised, and I don't know why I hadn't really thought of that before. I guess I thought that it kind of would be not well, kind of ignored or overlooked, you know, just from the state's perspective. But I do have a question. Were those men that killed Joseph Smith and Hiram, were they ever convicted? Were they, do they know, do we know who they were? Great question. There's a book that was actually done by a young attorney named Dallin H. Oaks, now President Oaks <laughs> of the awesome. First Presidency. It's, a, it's an awesome book. It really is. Yeah. He and a scholar named Joseph Bentley wrote a book <coughs> called The Carthage Conspiracy, where they really went through and analyzed the trial and what happened to those people that were charged, uh, what were the repercussions, was anyone actually held accountable? And, and frankly, the answer is not really. None of them were sentenced to jail. It was, a, in the minds of the Latter-day Saints, I think a sham trial. The deck was stacked against them. Already the populace there in Illinois and Missouri were really against the saints. And so I think the saints were pleased that there was going to be a trial, but not particularly confident, and rightly so, that anything would actually come of it. So mm. there were some uh, charges levied, but, but ultimately no one really was accountable for the, the martyrdom of, of Joseph and Hiram. Wow. So again, just kind of reminding our listeners where things are at here in Nauvoo. We, we have the, the prophet is dead. We have the, the murder trial, which feels like a sham. And then another nail in the coffin comes with the repeal of the Nauvoo Charter. This charter, which allows them to have a police force, to have, uh, you know, have courts, to have city ordinances is repealed by the Illinois state legislature. Let's listen to a little quote here from the book about what this felt like for the saints in Nauvoo. Without these protections, Brigham feared, the saints would be vulnerable to attacks from their enemies. Yet the temple was far from finished. 
and if the saints fled the city, they could hardly expect to receive their endowment. They needed time to complete the work the Lord had given them, but staying in Nauvoo, if only for another year, could put everyone's lives at risk. Brigham went to his knees and prayed to know what the saints should do. The Lord responded with a simple answer, Stay and finish the temple. What do you think they're feeling when all this is crushing in and and we're going to build this temple, but they know they have to leave, don't they? Well, they do. I think that they're convinced of that pretty soon after the death of Joseph and Hiram. So once again, just as they found themselves in Missouri, they no longer have the protection of the law. And they're not confident that the state nor the federal government will protect them. That's their experience. They know that they're really on their own. But yet they know they want those ordinances, and they're already starting to look west. Joseph Smith prophesied that the saints would move to the Rocky Mountains at one point. So they know they're leaving, yet how do we actually get the promises and the protections that can only come through the endowment? That seems to be going through their minds. And as you just read, Brigham Young was convinced uh, by inspiration from the Lord that they had to build the temple. Even if it cost them everything, they had to get that done. And it's striking to me that they would put so much into an edifice that they were going to abandon. You know, that they put literally put everything into it, knowing that they were going to be packing up and moving wholesale to the West. And at this time, how long had they been in Nauvoo? And how long did they anticipate having left on the temple? Like how much work left? Well, they got to Nauvoo in 1839. And by this time, they're leaving by early February 1846. So they'd gotten done what they needed to on the temple, enough to perform all the ordinances before they actually left. So people are being endowed and sealed. And the temple served its purpose. I think what Brigham Young's next mission was, was to complete that charge that Joseph gave him to build temples around the world. You know, Brigham Young very early on thought there was going to be not just one or two or three, but dozens, if not hundreds of temples. Sometimes we think the prophets today are the ones that have that vision, but and that's true. But it's clear that early prophets saw a future day, whether that be in the near future or during the millennium, that temples would dot the earth. Now Brigham's job is just to build one more in Salt Lake City, and pretty soon that expands to other temples, and, and now you see where we're at today. But at the time, we had to get that temple done so those ordinances could be passed on and people could enjoy those blessings. Maybe you could describe for some of our listeners who may not have completed the chapter yet, the, the scene at the temple. Um, we're jumping forward just a little bit to, to the chapter here, but some saints are receiving their endowment, and Brigham says it's, it's time to go. Like, we, we really have to go. The violence, is there's an uptick. Can you just describe that for us? Well, they do know they have to leave. Things continue to get worse. They're being harassed. Mobs are coming. I think for a time the saints thought once Joseph and Hiram were dead that maybe they'd be, okay, they'd be left alone, which certainly was not the case at all. In fact, it just seems that their shedding of their blood seemed to create even greater bloodlust on the part of the mobs for anyone who Mm -hmm. affiliated with the Latter-day Saints. And so Brigham's ready to go. They know that they need to get going if they're going to reach the Salt Lake Valley in the fall of 1846. Many church members don't realize they were supposed to be in Salt Lake a year before they actually got there. And so Brigham, he's ready. He's, he's getting everyone ready to go. And the saints say, you can't leave without us receiving our endowments. We received those blessings. We've made incredible sacrifices. Please don't leave. And there's this touching scene where Brigham Young looks out over the saints who are gathered at the temple begging for their temple endowments and uh, finally says, okay. And I think he knew at that time instinctively what this might mean, that it might postpone the immigration for another year. But he said, let's go back. Let's give these people their, their blessings. They've, they've asked for them. They deserve them. And 
there'll be a cost, but there's also a great price to pay if they don't have those blessings. And I think that was my favorite part of the chapter, just imagining that scene because doesn't he tell them we have to go and does yeah. he doesn't he walk away right. and they just stay there and start going right. inside the temple and I just think they were probably so scared having already experienced all this death and like you said the death of the prophet really makes puts your life into perspective and they're about to lose husbands and children in this journey and so I can I understand how much they would want to be sealed you know and have those blessings and the endowment of power my own great-great-grandparents were among those that were sealed and received their endowments in the Nauvoo Temple before they came west, and that meant everything to them. Wow. And that's a legacy of faith they've passed down through our family. And as I look back on their journals and their accounts, his name was Alan Taylor, and I think that sustained them in remarkable ways. And I really wonder if the exodus could have happened had the temple not happened. I, I doubt it. It feels like a moment where the saints come together in a way that they never had before. And, and I'm totally with you, Shailen. Like that moment when Brigham walks away and he's expecting, okay, people follow in and they don't. They say, no, we're, we're staying. And he just turns back and says, okay, let's get this done. And, and I, I love that. I love that he allowed the saints to receive what Heavenly Father needed them to receive before they headed west. Let's move forward just a little bit. The Council of 50, um, Joseph had established prior to his death. A, a lot of folks listening will have never heard of that, or they, they've heard of it in our previous episode, but probably not before. Tell us what happened after Joseph died, and what was the role of the Council of Fifty in choosing a place to go and settle? Well, the Council of Fifty was an organization actually organized during the lifetime of Joseph Smith in the years leading up to the martyrdom. Joseph Smith determined that since they were going to take the saints west, as they needed to enter into treaties with other governments, uh, Native Americans and others that they needed to figure out how to logistically move an entire people west to a new settlement, that they needed to have a larger organization that was beyond, although it included members of the Quorum of the Twelve and other general authorities, something that was more inclusive. It included non-Latter-day Saints, as the book describes, uh, a Native American, that it would be a broader perspective of people committed to religious liberty and committed to making sure the saints were going to be taken care of. And so Joseph Smith and uh, other leaders in the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve created this, the Council of Fifty. And as you might imagine, it had about 50 people, thus the name. And it continued after the death of Joseph Smith and was used by Brigham Young to help facilitate the march west into the Salt Lake Valley. So it was a very, very important organization. It ran parallel with the ecclesiastical organization of the church, with the First Presidency in Quorum of the Twelve and was successful in its mission. It was new to me, anyway, that there was a man by the name of Louis Dana, who was an American Indian. He was called by the Council of Fifty to scout out locations. Let's listen to this little clip, and then maybe we can talk about what his role was in finding a place for the saints to go. By the end of April, the Council had appointed four men to join Lewis on the journey, including Brigham's brother Phineas and a recent convert named Solomon Tyndall, a Mohegan Indian who had been adopted by the Delaware. The expedition left Nauvoo soon after, traveling southwest through Missouri to the territory beyond. In our previous episode, we, we learned that the Saints, the Council of Fifty, had gathered maps, that uh, Lyman White had went to Texas, and now we have this Indian by the name of Dana Lewis looking westward. How did they determine 
the Salt Lake Valley? When when was that decision made? Well, Ben, as you mentioned, I think they're looking and casting about for any idea of where the saints could be safe. So we have people like Amos Lyman who are going to Texas. You have other individuals that are looking to the north of Nauvoo. You have individuals that are looking way west, all the way to California, others that are looking to the Vancouver Island and British Columbia. You have others who are looking to the Salt Lake Valley. There was a real question, and I think sometimes today in the church we just think, well, they were led by a prophet. You know, they had Brigham Young, and he just sort of figured the whole thing out, and the Lord just told him what to do. And I think that we need to realize that the prophets and apostles receive revelation just like we do. The Lord has made it clear in the revelations that you have to learn by study and by faith. He, he told Oliver Cowdery that he had to study it in his mind. Clearly, revelation takes effort. You have to do your best, and the Lord can confirm or direct or warn or, or protect you. But the Lord expects great effort on the part of his saints, including his prophets. And so I think this is their attempt to figure out where do we go? Where do we have the greatest political advantages? Who should we form alliances with? Where will we be safe. Safety was the big issue. Where can we be safe so that we won't be killed and our prophets won't be thrown in jail or martyred like Joseph and Hiram were? And so they looked all over the place. But it's clear that shortly after Joseph Smith's death, it's clear that the Rocky Mountains, based on earlier statements of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young's own thinking, uh, were the place where they should be. And in fact, in the Nauvoo Temple, most people don't realize that in the Celestial Room, you actually had some maps of the West up on the wall as decoration, but also I think as reminders of where the saints were ultimately going. And it's clear that Brigham Young knew, generally speaking, where he wanted to go. It wasn't like he was just going off into the wild blue yonder, having right. no idea. Right. They, they had maps, they knew the trails, they were talking with mountain men, Native Americans like this man that you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago. And Brigham Young seems to have focused in very early on the Great Salt Lake Valley and the Bear River Valley. And one thing that he said that's recorded in the book that I love he said, Isaiah prophesied basically in the Old Testament that the saints in the last days would go to the tops of the mountains, and there they'd raise an ensign to the nations and wave a flag. And then he said, I know the place, and I know how to make the flag. And so I think he knew when he got here, when he went to Ensign Peak, he reenacted what he had seen in vision, went to the top of Ensign Peak where the Lord had told him in vision that if he were to build directly south of this, the saints would be protected. Again, they'd be safe. And there with early uh, other men, they raised a, a banner to the nations, both figuratively and, and, and literally with a handkerchief. They're reenacting biblical prophecy. And this is so amazing to me, just as you described all of the places that people went and the maps that they had in the celestial room. I had, I had no idea. Um, but there, that was so much time and effort, and they consulted with. I would call mountain men professionals and the, right, right. And, the, the and the Native Americans. Yeah, for definitely. And uh, it just kind of validates me in my personal, you know, seeking for revelation, just that we don't necessarily, Heavenly Father's not going to answer our yes and no questions, and he's not going to tell us exactly what to do. You know, he expects a lot of time and effort and work on our part. And I feel like this is such a great example of that, that I just wasn't aware of. Yeah, he expects all of us, including his prophets, to figure out and study it out of their minds, do the best they possibly can, and then come to him for confirmation. Mm -hmm. And that was certainly the case for the saints coming west, including linking up with Native Americans, mountain men, trappers, tradesmen, finding the latest and greatest maps. Same thing in our own lives, just like you say. Mm -hmm. It's a great analogy. There's a, another part of the story that perhaps many of our readers might have been unfamiliar with, there's missionaries all over the place during this time. 
And there was a man by the name of Addison Pratt, who earlier had, uh, he had been a, a, on a whaling ship. With that experience in mind, he was given an opportunity to go on a mission back to the islands of the South Pacific. And in 1845, around the, the same time that we're talking through here, Addison is out on an island n- near Tahiti called Tubuai. So Addison Pratt, this Mormon elder, is literally halfway around the world in, in Tubuai. And his wife, Louisa Pratt, is in their home in Bear Creek. Do you remember this part of the story, Shailene? Yes. What was your thought about her and what she's going through at this moment? It's unimaginable to me because now when we think of missionaries, we think of being able to call them on Christmas and Mother's Day and write letters and emails every Monday. And he had not heard from his family. And had she gotten letters from him? He said he wrote them, but did she, was she getting letters? I think at that point in the story, she hadn't even heard from him yet. He, he didn't know that the prophet had been murdered for a year afterward. There's just no communication. Yeah, I can't even imagine what she was going through. And then wasn't it a neighboring city that mobs were attacking right. and, and she was left alone to fend kind of fend herself. for her fam- herself yeah. and her family and protect them? And yeah, that's what I was thinking. I, I don't even have the words. It would be so scary. Louisa is there. She's fending off the mobs out in Bear Creek. Louisa's like many others. She's, she's in a situation of poverty. And what Brigham does here was inspiring to me. Brigham proposed that they covenant with each other and with the Lord to leave no one behind who wished to go west. Heber Kimball called for a sustaining vote, and the saints raised their hands as a sign of their willingness to carry out their pledge. If you will be faithful to your covenant, Brigham promised, I will now prophesy that the great God will shower down means upon this people to accomplish it to the very letter. What does that tell us about what Zion means? If there's no poor among us, they had poor people. And in this particular case, they are making a covenant that they're going to take care of everyone. They are literally going to live the law of consecration to get everyone west. They're going to give up everything they have. They're going to make sure no one is left behind. That's a totally, totally different take on consecration. And what these saints were magnificent in following. So I'm really touched by it. What about you? What do you think? Well, can I share one of my other favorite parts of this chapter? (laughs) In speaking of Louisa Pratt... Here she was. You mentioned she was one of the poor saints, and her husband is halfway across the world. And she's, I, I think she's discouraged because no one's offering to help right, her. Right, right. I love this. I'm glad you brought yes. this up. Well, and especially the, you know, the other brethren that had called her husband to a mission. They know where he is and the circumstance that he's in and that she's in. And uh, one of her friends you know, when when she knew that Sister Pratt was discouraged, her friend said, they expect you to be smart enough to go yourself without help and even to assist others. And I just thought that that was pretty bold of her friend to say because I think Louisa could have been really offended, like not having received any help in the situation that she was in where she could use have used a lot of help. But what she said was, well, I will show them what I can do. And I just think that's so amazing because it doesn't really matter our circumstance, there's always something that we can do. And it might not be huge. I don't know what she was able to accomplish, uh, but I just think that that's so inspiring. But I also had a question. Did her husband ever reach, did he ever come home? Did he ever make it to Salt Lake? He did come home. Oh, good. He came home and settled, <laughs> was reunited with his family. Not that it was easy and there were challenges in the years to come, 
but he was able to make it home. I actually had a real sweet experience with uh, some of the descendants who knew Addison Pratt in Tubawai. Two years wow. ago, I found myself there on the island of Tubawai on a church history tour wow. with our church historian, Elder Stephen Snow. And we were picked up at the docks of the ferry by some of the great-great-granddaughters and grandsons of the first two converts who he was able to bring into the church in, in the 1840s, and they're still active in the church over there. And it was just incredible. You had a seven- and eight-generation family that we had lunch with, and they talked about what it was like, the stories that had been passed down orally in their families about having Addison and Louisa Pratt there. And we went to the places where their homes were and where they gathered water and where he'd go hunting and a place where he'd pray, kind of his own little sacred grove area. And you realize that these people are not that distance from us. Right. That uh, although you think, oh, that's back in the 19th century, that's back in the time of Brigham Young and Joseph Smith, that in fact their descendants are still there. They're still active. They're the leaders of the church in Tubawai. And uh, it, it was one of those moments when your understanding of church history is sort of disoriented because you think, oh, it's the Latter-day Saints in Utah that have been there a long time that are multi-generational families. Right, right. And then you realize that, wait, the gospel was in the South Pacific before Joseph Smith was killed, and many of their families have been in the church longer than anyone's family in Utah has ever been in the church. And so you start to appreciate that this truly is a global, a global church. It was a beautiful experience with these descendants and that's the actual landscape. Yeah, that's amazing. Reed, thank you so much for, for joining us. And Shaylin, thank you for joining us also. Maybe if I could, just one concluding question for you. You're also the managing director of the church history department. Saints has been a project that has been envisioned and been worked on for many years. Can you tell us what you hope this book, this project to tell the church's history in a new and narrative way what do you hope it accomplishes? Ten years ago, I was invited to be on the first committee that looked at creating what is now the four-volume Saints History. And we talked early on about what should this be about? What's the focus? What's the audience? What's the intended purpose of the book? And we determined very early on that it should be for the rising generation as defined in the scriptures as those young people and young adults that are really deciding, like the saints here in Nauvoo, are they going to stay with the main body of the church? Are they going to move west with the saints? Are they going to follow the prophet's clarion call? And so one of the things that we really wanted to do was to help them see that others had made similar sacrifices and had made similar decisions to follow key holders. We also decided very early on that we wanted to have the book center around the temple. And so you see the four volumes all focus on temple events, the dedication of the Nauvoo Temple, the dedication of the Salt Lake Temple, etc. So we wanted readers to appreciate that the temple could likewise be cornerstones in their own faith and in their own life and discipleship. And ultimately, we wanted to create a series of books that would get the general membership of the church all over the world excited and interested in church history. Now, it pains me as a historian to say that not everyone is interested in academically written history, <laughs> but I know that's the case. That's certainly the case. Hopefully these books, uh, in, written in a narrative, engaging style, will capture the minds and hearts of Latter-day Saints and help them make and keep their own sacred covenants and uh, do what the saints did, follow the prophet when he tells them it's time to go and what they should be doing. Thank you, Reed Nelson and Shailen Back, for being here with us again today. And thank you out there for listening and for tuning in to the Saints podcast. Just a reminder that our next podcast will be the final for volume one of Saints. 
we are welcoming back the story editor, Scott Hales. We're going to have a discussion with him about what Saints has accomplished and what you can look forward to in future volumes of Saints. You can always find more at saints.lds.org where you can read the latest chapters, topics, see the latest videos, and of course, to download and subscribe, you can visit mormonchannel.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. Join us again for our next episode where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days.